You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency, the podcast. PUT is a not-for-profit industry watchdog organization dedicated to exposing the truth about the shady, abusive practices of pharmacy benefit managers and how they affect American patients, healthcare providers, and taxpayers. On the podcast, we'll talk to pharmacy industry experts, influencers, and patients, always with the goal of bringing the truth, transparency, and solutions to America's prescription drug affordability crisis. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Monique Whitney. I am the executive director for Pharmacist United for Truth and Transparency. And this is our December end of year episode. I'm so happy that you're with us uh, this evening. Who is with us in our conversation are fellow members of the PUP boards. I'd like to start by introducing our president, Scott Newman, who's also my co-host. Scott. Hello. Thanks for joining and our board member from Illinois, Lauren. Hi, thanks for having me. And of course we have our board member from Kansas, Van. Hi, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Yes, it is. Uh, we are all kind of, if, if not crawling on our hands and knees, I know I'm definitely crawling uh, by my fingers to our holiday season. So definitely looking forward to that. And then, of course, we have our board member in Virginia, Lord Dr. Jeremy Counts. Hello. So we're all here to talk about the year that was. It started off so well. I don't know if any of you are like me that when you think about January and a world where there wasn't a pandemic, it just January seemed pretty bright and like there was going to be so much going on. And, and we had we had big goals. You guys remember that? Definitely. Yes. It was also a world where the Supreme Court hadn't hadn't ruled all our case either. So, yeah, that's Two right. Sides of that coin. That's right. We we did not know how that was going to go. In fact, what's really funny about that, now that you mentioned that, Scott, is that when we were doing our January podcast, or our very first podcast, we were recording our first podcast and there were all these dings going off. And it, there were two things going on. One was I didn't realize that I personally needed to turn off my notifications, but that was the day that we found out that the Supreme Court was going to even hear our case. There you go. Yeah. So that was a big day. So here we are, we are almost to the end of 2020. It has definitely not been a year like we thought it was going to be. But I thought it would be interesting for us to look back on some of the things that did happen this year and talk a little bit about how it went. And, and then as we you know talk more, start to look at what do we think 2021 is gonna be like now that we're on you know this side of a pandemic, there's a vaccine, there's two and we've, you know, come through, I think, one of the most interesting times for medical technology in modern history. January was big for me because I was able to go to my first event as a PUT board member whenever I went to New York for the legislative rally they had when the governor's state of the state address 
was happening. And there were pharmacy owners from all over the state of New York that met in Albany and had their signs and really got a connection with the legislators. There was four or five different legislators. I remember Senator Scoopus came down and spoke to the group and several others, including John McDonald, who is an independent pharmacist in the state legislature there in New York. And it was inspiring to see the effort that the pharmacists made and the connections that they made. And they were understandably irritated because their pharmacy benefit manager reform bill had been vetoed by the governor. So they were trying to make it heard that that was not going to save the state money. That was not the direction that it needed to go. And it ended up that the governor was hiding behind the ERISA statute. And now with the Supreme Court ruling last week, hopefully they're able to pass something in 2021. Yeah, I think that was more a function of them using that as an ex a convenient excuse for. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, we don't really like to say that, you know, money changes hand in politics, but we all know that it does happen. And certainly there is some involvement in, you know, that, that relationship there where, you know, somebody very close to the governor, um, you know, works in the industry and, you know, these conflicts of interest you know, they have to be called out, they have to be noted, and they should be corrected. It's frustrating because you'd think that after all this time, you know, you wouldn't have to deal with the kind of game playing that we have come to see in the time that PUT has developed. You know, there was a time when we were just here to get media coverage, and we started to achieve that. And then as we started to get more and more involved, at the in advocating at the state level, we started to learn just exactly how real it is that you have to have relationships and develop relationships because if you don't, someone else who does is going to get in there and and that's very likely how the legislation is going to go. So you know the old adage about get into pharmacy, get into politics, or get out of pharmacy it has I would say it's definitely turned out to be true. Um, I, do you guys remember no when? Doubt. At the beginning of the year, when we were helping, we were in Wisconsin and we were advocating for their bill. And there was the one representative who was, you know, talking to the PBM person about her experience with a PBM and about a constituent's experience. And then the person was like, no, that wasn't our PBM. And she's like, well, I'm the constituent and it was your PBM. You know, it's moments like that where you realize, yeah. That happens because someone took the time to educate that person who can do something about the problem. And that's what we all need more of. Yeah, same, same situation kind of in Virginia. I mean, we had a color change in the uh, Congress in Virginia and uh, one of our bill sponsors, you know, who had very little idea of what was going on was relatively easy to train. He was new, um, new to the house, and he had a personal experience. And so it was easy for him to make the connection that, hey, you know, this happened to me. It's happening to my constituents. I should take this on as a, as a new representative. And so it made it kind of easy for us to find bill sponsors that way. 
Yeah, that that's also one reason I, I train all my employees. Uh, I tell other pharmacists to do this as well is whenever you're talking to the patient, don't tell them, oh, you know, we're waiting for the insurance to approve it or we're trying to do this. Blame the PBM. That's that's where all this crap's falling. Like you need to. That's why I try to educate the general public like, well, the PBM is uh, denying it because it's not on their formulary and they'll go oh well what's the pbm it's 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 a lot better for everyone to do it raises awareness and it's something that is actually pretty easy for people to understand uh on a basic level and they're really 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 good scapegoats god they're good but it usually is their problem <laughs> i would chime in with what jeremy said um when I was practicing, I used the PBM to my advantage. And most people, most of my patients didn't have a clue who that was and what they did or anything about it. And you really need to bring them into the conversation because they are the ones that control the co-pays, the reimbursements, everything, as we know except your patients don't know that. So we had an opportunity to expand yeah. on the relationships. Uh, we There were two things that happened. One was we went to CPAC in Washington, D.C. in February, which was a really interesting experience because it's the single largest gathering of conservatives in the country. And we what we found, although our issues have been non partisan. It's, it's, it's sort of like a blessing and a curse, right? So the, everyone can relate to the healthcare problems as the blessing, the curses. Everyone can relate to the healthcare problems and nobody really knows what, what to do about it. Nobody has a really, you know, strong and viable solution that can stand for very long in the face of, you know, big lobbying dollars and lots of political pressure from the opposition. But we went there and we had the opportunity to talk with, you know, a number of of lawmakers and uh, influencers and, and different folks there in Washington, D.C. about some of the issues that we were facing. And then that turned around and helped us when it turned out that this coronavirus was not just a thing, but it was a, a serious thing. And it was it was, you know, coming in and started to sweep across the nation and, and shut us all down, because then what happened in March, as we were you know witnessing mid-March, uh, cities and states starting to go into shelter-in-place mode, uh, the work that we had been doing, that our members had been doing, enabled us to, to reach out to every single governor's coronavirus task force and every single department of insurance and every single state board of pharmacy. We sent letters and a four-point plan to each one of these entities, and our plan explained how they could best utilize their independent pharmacies because they, they are independent, they are mobile and flexible in being able to, to work with and combat the crisis. And what I was really pleased about was that we ended up hearing back from a number of states. Sometimes they just thanked us for sending the information, which was nice, not exactly what we'd hoped for in terms of response. Sometimes they came back and told us what their plan was for utilization. Uh, but it was because of that that we were you know, able to even have that idea and not feel like, well, you know, everything's shutting down. We're helpless. What are we going to do? It was quite um, interesting to hear back from them, though. And, and of course, in 
you know, that was before everything started to shut down and, and the feedback alone tells you that you're, you're, whatever you're doing is getting to somebody. I think that was a really good initiative and Monique, you need to be uh, applauded for putting all of that together for Putt. Uh, whether we got anything back or not, our name got in into their realm. Yeah, thank you. I, I think what we were most proud of doing the work was just reminding so many different groups that independent pharmacies are there, they're ready at hand. Uh, it's been ironic, and especially now on this side of the, of the pandemic where here we've got vaccines, we've had pharmacies that you know, have gone through every imaginable kind of training protocol. They have uh, you know, done what they can to be ready for this vaccine. And then you know, lo and behold, what happens? CVS and Walgreens get the contract to roll out the vaccines on a large scale you know, only to find out that they can't do it on their own. So they are coming back to and hitting up independent pharmacies for help. To me, it's just downright irritating that, you know, we're relegated to the back burner, so to speak. And then CVS is out beating the bushes, trying to get independent pharmacies to come in and bail them out when they, uh, are not able to do what they perpetrated that they could do to the the United States government. Screw CBS. Well, the real, the real sad, the, yeah, the real sad part about it, though, is is that um, you know they do have the network and the structure to take care of this appropriately. But you know, we saw after you know the the pandemic started all these broken promises that none of us are really surprised about, but maybe a little bit surprised that they would do it so, um, so blatantly, you know, they started cutting hours and they started cutting technician hours and they started cutting pharmacist hours. And then they, they make this deal and then they don't prepare for it. And you're just wondering what in the world were they thinking taking on this task, are they really that disconnected from the bench that they that they think that, that they've already made dangerous situations in their retail locations, and now they're going to dump this on the same group that they've already short-staffed and made situations dangerous? And when they realize that's not going to help the same group that they've shit on for the last decade and a half, um, you know, they're going to ask us to volunteer to help them and try to pull at our, you know, well-known heartstrings of, of wanting to help and, and be part of that solution. You know what? Don't, don't play that game with me. If it was about patient care, they would have had proper staffing for this. It's about the money grab. And until they do something to show me anything different, that just continues the, the you know, the, the crap, what's the word I'm looking for? That just continues the theme that we know that they're just greedy bastards and it has nothing to do with, with patient care and, and, and making sure that people are vaccinated appropriately. I say let them drown in it. That's why I tell everyone else. I say don't help them. If they call to help, don't help them. And, yeah, you may want to help the public. You may want to do this or that. But they're cancer. Let them drown in their own problems. Like they they have understaffed their pharmacies. They, they treat their employees like animals. Like it's like a sweatshop in there. It's awful. 
And now they're like, oh, well, I guess we don't have the manpower. Yeah, because you've been dangerously understaffing for years. So, yeah, let them drown in it. Let them have a crisis. I don't care. I'm not going to care about them. I care about my patients. No, they've created it to where uh, half of the world can't even come use me. So what do I care if CVS is having problems? No, it's true. Yeah, and that comes... And it comes back to the idea that, like, you know, a lot of these these pharmacies service these long-term care organizations, especially in rural parts where there isn't, uh, you know, a local CVS. And, you know, they, they do have Omnicare. And, and as that branch, they, you know, they try to take over and deliver or ship or mail or whatever, drive, you know, four hours to a facility you know, to, to supply medications when there's a, an independent that's been doing it for years right next to them. And it really, it just, it gives them another end to steal business. And, you know, they can make all the flashy promises they want to when they go into these facilities. These facilities don't know any better. When they, I use, I've, I've spent time at Omnicare in a past life, and I can tell you that it's a dangerous situation to let them flash these you know, all these talking points about how wonderful and how efficient and how, uh, uh, you know, you know, inexpensive they are when it really all it is is they're just basically giving attention to whoever's next in line in a contract. And once they sign that contract, it's hard to get out of. And at that point, the facilities are like, what did we do here? That's going to be. So these people are going to have some issues getting vaccinated appropriately, I can tell you right now. It's, you're right. When we look to the future and we look at, you know, so there's there's the education that we've done, right, up to this point. So we started with this. I would say, in fact, let me just back up on myself here. I would say that, you know, we, we looked at 2020 and we said, you know, whole new year and we're going to, you know, we're going to shed light on all these things that are going on. And it's going to be amazing, right? And then this COVID happened and we, like everybody else in the world, had to pivot. And we started first just going out and saying, hey, we're here, we're ready at hand, use us, use us, we are here, we can help, right? And and some states did, like I, I will never forget, you know, watching the, the New York uh, Governor Cuomo's press conference and he would always do these uh, PowerPoints as part of his, his uh, briefings. And the day that he said that they were utilizing community pharmacies to assist with testing and that they were going to be an integral part. I mean, I just remember thinking, like, I was, I almost dropped my coffee, you know, right there, just watching that. I thought, this is so great that such a, a high-profile governor would would see and understand the necessity. And that, as much as I'd love to say, oh, that was putt, that was really the hard work of the Pharmacist Society for the State of New York, who'd been lobbying and working and developing their own relationships for years. But we took it a little bit step further by reaching out to other states and engaging in this slow but steady education campaign that then, you know, brought us to the middle of the summer when we were invited, and it was a really unusual situation for us, but we were invited to talk to members of the White House about what we saw were the issues facing healthcare, drug pricing, accessibility of medication. And that resulted in presenting a, a proposal in which we outlined, they literally asked us, if you could fix the system, what would you do? And so what we did was we took you know, everything that we've been hearing from our members and we distilled it. It was not an easy thing to do, but we distilled it 
into a, a two-page bullet point document within like 27 pages of evidence and corroborating information and submitted that to the Trump administration, which then later on uh, resulted in a request to, to participate in drafting executive order language. In the end, they drafted their executive orders a little differently than what we proposed. Some of our language did make it into one of the, the proposals. It was such an exciting opportunity, and I feel like it, it really showed how you can take a simple relationship, you know, something you think won't, maybe isn't that big of a deal, and how that simple relationship can grow on itself and grow on itself and grow on itself until finally you've found your way to people who can do something about that, which in this case turned out to be the Trump administration. That's the kind of, um, of, of, of project that, you know, you, you learn so much just being the expert on it, even though you're kind of like the person who should you know, best handle it. And, and I don't know if you've ever had, well, you obviously just had one of these experiences, but it's a situation where you almost teach yourself better than like having to learn it like that and put it in paper to teach somebody else better by doing so. And uh, that certainly, I, I believe, is the case with this. You, you, you just kind of learn it so much deeper when you have to do something like this. Yeah, I was so proud of you all. Like, yeah, you all put it together. It, it was great. It was awesome. And one thing I learned through all of this is, you know, so much work was put into this and so much evidence is gathered. The solution really isn't hard in the end. It, they're just an industry that shouldn't exist. Like they just should not exist. The real solution is just getting PBMs out. That's the solution. The, the complication comes figuring out how to keep them there really, and have them act fairly, but they're not, they're bad actors in the healthcare system. They have no business existing. So really, it's not a complicated issue. They just need to be gone. A, literally every single complication comes from trying to make sure that they aren't screwing people over. And they're, they are constantly. So why do we even bother with it? Like, why do we bother with them? Yeah, you bring up an interesting point, Jeremy, because something else that we did uh, this year was we hosted a call for our members with Vicki Cunningham. She was the architect of the West Virginia Medicaid carve-out, which I think was one of the very first carve-outs, if not the first carve-out. I, I don't remember exactly. But she came and talked to us, and one of the things that she mentioned that I did not know was that every single state has to have that that. Uh, fallback plan in case the PBM fails so that they can go forward with processing the claims. And so because every state has that as a fallback plan and it's required by law, by CMS, it's completely feasible that at least in some segments, you wouldn't even need that. You wouldn't need a PBM or six PBMs or however many you know, monitor and manage the, the different state uh, Medicaid programs. I know we're looking, we've done work in, in several different states and, and we've been examining the different states and how they're doing things. Florida does it one way, Arizona does it a very different way. And, and every time we go in and we're, we're assisting or doing some work there, that's always on the back of my mind. I'm like, oh, the state could actually do this. 
they're supposed to be able to by law. That really did give me hope when Vicki said that, because in Illinois, that seems to be one of the big barriers is the fact that one of our previous governors gutted a lot of state departments. And that seems to be one of the areas that the legislators that are apprehensive or against the Medicaid carve out, you know, removing MCOs, they say, well, we can't possibly do that because of how lean the departments are. They'd never be able to handle that onslaught of claims if we changed over. But when Vicki said that, a lot of different owners in Illinois really started getting some hope that this could get traction and, you know, talk to our senator about it. And he was very interested in proposing a carve out bill until COVID happened. But, you know, that should be the reason why there should be a carve out. You know, these states are, are cash hungry right now. They're strapped. They're looking for ways to save money because of the loss of the tax um, income. And what better way to find a, a couple hundred million dollars than to carve out your PBM? That's an easy answer. Exactly. Vicky needs to be making the rounds in a lot of states. Absolutely. And one thing that we found, too, in Illinois with some of the legislators and even other states that I've talked to, you know, they say in, in Kentucky earlier this year, whenever Max Wise, Senator Wise was going through this, uh, they were trying to talk about a carve out, Medicaid carve out. And it came up time and time again, especially from the, you know, same P PCMA and some of the health insurance plans in that state just kept saying, you know, this is not West Virginia. This won't work here in Kentucky or Illinois or Wisconsin or fill in the blank of the state. And Vicki is saying, yes, it can. And look how great it did. Not only did it blow the actuary number out of the water instead of 30 million, it was 52 or 54 and 122 went back in additional dispensing fees to the independent pharmacies. And that as we all know, went right back into the community and into other areas of our state, which is exactly what PBMs and the MCOs are not doing. I mean, who are you going to listen to? You're going to listen to the, the, the entity that you know is basically telling a self-serving message where they've already had their hand slapped or they've already been caught with their hands in the cookie jar that that's not going to work here. Like, that's the number one reason why I would say it absolutely would. If they say it's not going to work there, then you know it's going to work there. Yeah, it's fascinating the degree to which data-driven problems are not analyzed using data or not using the same data set. It, it, it reminds me of actually what happened in Louisiana, which is something else that uh, we were involved in sort of on the periphery. This very much was the Louisiana Independent Pharmacy Association. It was their fight. They are mobilized. They they really are, as someone said, the gold standard for how associations should respond. But they had a situation where the state had the state really got hurt from COVID. They they uh, Louisiana depends a lot on oil and gas revenues and and you know that industry was really hard hit because of the pandemic, just like many were. And of course, their tourism dollars were hurting, were hit. And so the whole state was hurting. So they decided, based on the advice of their actuary, who 
isn't a state employee, but is a consultant in Missouri, St. Louis, not far from one of our least favorite PBMs, this actuary gave them this advice that they could save you know, 36 million if they, was it 36 million? They, they were, I think it was, it was The ultimate number was 109 million. 109 million, yes, 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 thank you. So they, they were, they, yeah, these numbers all run together. So they, they were given this advice, right? And, and then they went and put this contract out to bid and then CBS came in and said, oh, we, we can meet that, we can create these savings. In the meantime, the incumbent PBM, you know, came back and, and they were trying to, they said they would match whatever CBS was doing. But as they were analyzing the contract, they were saying there's no savings here. There is no savings. We can only match the price. And it was like watch, it was this fascinating, you know, process of watching these two PBMs fight uh, using language that nobody really understood what was going on because you and me and, and average everyday people, we look at PBMs for like, what money are you going to save us? What are you going to save us? And all that was coming up was they weren't going to save anything. And in fact, in the long run, they were going to cost a lot of money and it was going to start to, you know, come back to haunt them in the second and third years of the contract. It didn't work out. Yeah. So any, any of the savings that was going to happen, I think this is come off of the backs of the providers, i.e. the pharmacists and the pharmacy owners in the state. That's exactly right. And it's fortunate that Louisiana is a state that is so, I would say, uh, integrated at the level of community. It's like they, every, everything is community there, which is just a, a wonderful thing to witness. You know, they seemed to understand that, but what was fascinating was watching the reaction of CBS when they lost that contract. Uh, they took ah, out yes, the, the, the temper tantrum. Yes, they they took out ads, you know, and 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 it, this was very public. I don't think I'd ever seen such a large corporation throw such a public ten, temper tantrum. It was like they had a complete meltdown, and they had a meltdown to the tune of you know probably a hundred thousand dollars by the time figure out all the media buys that they did. And yet, you know, you would think corporations would look at that and say, huh, I'm not so sure I want to be involved with that. And yet here they are, you know, they're still chugging along. They're still, you know, doing what they're doing making allegations. It's, it's, it's interesting. It just points to the need for more education. I, I, I wish it was something else, <laughs> but it's, it well, you like know, it's also, it's also to this whole idea that, they needed to retaliate against us. I mean, come on. I mean, they, they put up a huge billboard right off of, of Interstate 10 going into NOLA that said, you know, your local community pharmacy is going to, is going to be the cause for your prescription drugs to go higher next year. But what a load of crap, you know? Like, seriously, it's like, could, could you gaslight any harder, CVS? Fuck those assholes. Like, that was the most insulting, pitiful thing I've ever seen in my life. Like, come on. We're out here, and we're getting under-reimbursed, and we're fighting to for, keep our community okay, and they pull that bullshit. Like, come on. We're, we are trying to do what is best for our patients and our community, and then we have to deal with these PBMs all the time, and then they go out and start slandering us. No, no, no. These criminals need to be slapped down. It's 
it's beyond how where it's been in the past and it just keeps getting worse and them coming directly at us like that slandering pretty much the profession even though they're trying to eliminate our profession is that that's next level no we we need to call them out for the cancer they are it was nice though because that was a great example of of how your involvement at every level you know government and process you know, it opened up. You know, I, I don't. I learn a lot, obviously, in this in this role, and, and spending so much time on our organization business and and reading and communicating. It's just a whole another level that they're at that makes you think. You, you you learn something new from from the people doing it right, and that's somebody had their their ear to the ground and or their finger on the pulse of what was going on there, and and, and a and a really kind of a a shady business transaction, so to speak. Um, somebody, you know, obviously Randall deserves most of the credit with that and, and the connections that he's made. But, you know, in most other states, this would have flown right under the radar. And these guys stood up and said no. And guess what? Their entire legis- uh, subcommittee uh, voted 24 to nothing to reject that contract. And that's an amazing thing. So, we earned the right to be slandered and libeled on a billboard, and and it's almost a badge of of you know of honor. Yeah, I really, I I totally agree, Scott, and I really think that what I took away from that was how other not only like you said, Monique, that it's a gold standard of how a pharmacy advocacy organization at a state level can educate their legislators, but also that Randall had enough faith in the members of LIPA to educate those members of the committee and not have to hold their hand through it all. I mean, you could see when TJ got up to speak or when anyone else was up there speaking that Randall had total faith in the association members, that they were going to get the point across. It wasn't going to be business owners, quote, whining about losing their business. They were talking to their own patients that were sitting in the committee member's seat and getting them to understand that their vote against CVS was a vote for the patients of Louisiana. And that's really what we try to do as an advocacy organization every time we talk to our members. And it's really great. And the real irony of the outcome of that one was that, you know, the the biggest one of the biggest sticking points was the you know CVS wanted to to what was it less than a dollar dispensing fee, so to 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 quote unquote come to the table and negotiate to to give the give back a little bit was CVS somehow convinced their budget office to allow the state to pay an extra $2 dispensing fee for a total of $3. How generous of them. Instead of CVS paying it, the state was going to pay it. No, thank you. Wisconsin did a good job back in January and February when we were there. They literally brought their patients to the table. Uh, There were many, many patients that were there who testified, and I think that's one of the things that distinguishes us. When when I've been in stakeholder meetings or met with, you know, policymakers, you never see patients there with the PBM representatives. They might come in with their charts and their graphs, 
they might come in with whatever you know data they have favorable to their own outcomes, but you don't see them walk in with patients. And I think that's what really makes community pharmacy so wonderful because it is about the patients. It is about, it's that inherent implicit understanding that, you know, a, a community's health is everybody's health and therefore everybody's impacted when a community pharmacy goes away. Yeah, and that's, I think it's an important thing to note and I know that we're working through the year, but it's interesting to note uh, John Vincent and the, um, hearing that he was testifying in yesterday made that point was, you know, you hear, you know, this PCMA representative come in and talk about all the benefits of the PBM and hear them mention the patient. It's not about patient or health care. It's about the dollar. It's about, it's about what's best for their constituents and that are their for their shareholders. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's who they would bring, right? They'd bring their shareholders. <laughs> we um, so we were talking about the gold standard in Louisiana. I I would be remiss if we didn't also mention, I, I the other standard. I, and I don't even know if they would be gold or platinum. But Georgia, Georgia has, you know, quietly been a real force. And they first came to you know, I think my attention for sure, but everyone's attention back when CVS was merging with Aetna and they were, they had somehow gotten these concessions out of CVS that no other state had gotten in order to get that approval for them to move forward. Um, I think they knew that they weren't going to be able to stop the mergers. So they were going to try to get the best deal that they could, but in the end it didn't matter because what they were doing was developing this legislation that was going to directly take on patient steering and several other, you know, just terrible practices that PBMs engage in. And they got these practices, you know, on the books and then they went back in 2020 and they tightened them up. Georgia has always seemed that, like they're on the forefront. That, like they just seem like they've been, that they've always just kind of got it, you know? Go ahead. You know, and usually I found that's what you, you have to do is get if you can get something passed then uh, you have to go back and tighten it up or if you can get a you have a good enough working relationship with whatever agency is going to enforce the law that you're passing if you can uh pass the law and then allow the agency to work with you to formulate the rules and regs, that works very well. We were so impressed with what Georgia had done that when we discovered an opportunity to submit policy language for consideration at the American Legislative Exchange Council at their policy summit, we went to Georgia and we took their, uh, they had 13 prohibited practices, and we took that and we submitted that as the Pharmacy and Pharmacy Protection, Patient Protection Act. We worked with Greg Reibold from the Georgia Pharmacists Association to uh, work the language in such a way that it would be useful for any state to be able to adopt once this language has been adopted by ALEC. It was a really interesting experience because in our case, we were presenting it to, there's the, 
just to let people know, so the ALEC task force, the Health and Human Services Task Force, has 300 members on it. And most of them are state legislators, and many of them are ones that our members know and have worked with. So we we knew, you know, going in that we had we had an audience that would some of them were going to know what we were talking about, which was helpful because. But we also had to present to the opposition. So PCMA was re- is represented on on this committee. Uh, there were some organizations that represent the interests of health benefit plans. They were on there as well, and so we knew we were going to hit opposition with this, and it, it ended up being a fascinating process. We we went in and we decided since we had this one shot to make this presentation, and it just so happens because it was a virtual meeting this year, we were going to present very detailed evidence. So as we were going through each of these practices, like we talked about mandatory mail order, we talked about patient steering. We talked about transaction fees. We talked about audit abuse. I mean, there's all the big things that, you know, if you think abusive PBM practices, it was in this list. And we presented evidence. We actually put on screen patient steering letters with the patient's information, you know, redacted so everybody was protected. But we put it up there so they could see the letter that went to a customer that specifically referenced the pharmacy that they were at and what would happen if they did not change over to you know, CVS or to mail order. We put up examples of threats of retaliation. We put up examples of, you know, uh, correspondences around audit, unfair audit findings and how payments, all payments to a pharmacy were being withheld because audit findings hadn't been fully processed and resolved on the PBM's part. And it was, it was interesting to be able to go up there and say, this is, this is the practice we're talking about and here is evidence of what we're talking about. So we weren't just coming in and saying they're doing this. We were showing them over and over and over. And so it ended up being a, a very, shall we say, spirited discussion between us and the opposition. Because, of course, you know, the opposition came back with the usual and customary arguments, right? Uh, we, love our, we love our independent pharmacies. We support our independent pharmacies. There are more independent pharmacies than have ever been before. We don't reverse like, all that, right? <laughs> it was so disgusting. But what's really exciting about it is that the, the legislators who were on the committee were engaged. They were interested. The, the, the person who chaired the, the discussion on the, the legislators, the legislators component of the group, said that she had seen evidence of this in, here in Arizona where I am and that they were willing to continue this conversation. So we're going to be taking the Pharmacy and Pharmacy Patient Protection Act back to ALEC in 2021 to uh, for further discussion and to try to have that be enacted. And you know when that's enacted, that will be a huge win for pharmacies and for the patients who love their pharmacies and want to be able to keep going to them. Yeah, and all this happened just before the Supreme Court announced their decision. So I think that had that happened just a week or two prior, they may have have had a better outcome for this year, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. I would agree with Scott's assessment. And I think that's going to be interesting, too, because, you know, it's been a busy year when you look at, you know, everything. I mean, we've just talked about really just, you know, three, four, five highlights of things. I mean, this has been a year of just, you know, go, go, go. And, and we didn't even talk about, you know, how we work to 
support and encourage pharmacists on the front lines who were, you know, just so over and out with COVID that it was starting to look pretty dire for them, but we were providing moral support and encouragement and those kinds of things as well. Uh, we're coming now, right? This is the end of the year. We've had an, a, an incredible victory with the Supreme Court. We, we already know, I don't think anybody here has any illusions about what it's going to mean at the state level moving into 2021. But I think as we look to the this next year, there's going to be some other things that we're going to be working on. And, and Scott, before we started even recording, you know, we were talking about the role of PSAOs and, and you were sharing a little bit about your thoughts. And I wondered if you might want to say a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think that, um, that this coming year, the role of the PSAO is probably going to um, come a little bit more into the center stage and not for any other particular reason than we're seeing you know, PCMA and, and the PBMs um, use that as some sort of, you know, defense mechanism against groups of people who have no idea what a PSAO is. And, of course, in the industry, we all know what a PSAO is, but do we really know a PSAO? Um, we do know that they do a lot of all back office stuff for us, but, you know, aside from the last – you know, a couple of days where I've looked into some things, you know, there's a lot of things that you don't know about PSAOs. Uh, we know that they don't have a negotiating power. We know that they have to, they are fiduciary, so they have a fiduciary duty to their, to their members. However, you know, they aren't really the contracting entity. They just sign a contract on our behalf. So this idea that they're you know, these sophisticated contract negotiators is asinine. You know, they don't have anything to do with what the PBMs do. Um, you know, so why they keep, you know, get being brought to surface as an argument as to why, you know, their contracting is fair, I, I, I guess that's just because no one knows much about them. But, you know, they are there, I think, in our best interest. A lot of people, you know, have decided to use them or not use them, and that's their choice. But, you know, just to give you an idea, one of the things I was talking about just before the call, you know, we got we got a, a you know, a communication by our PSAO today, and I won't say it out loud because it's supposed to be proprietary, but, you know, they're trying to settle up the, you know, the generic effective rate contracts with two large PBMs. One of them being CVS and the other being OptumRx, and uh, so the PSAO is just basically communicating that um, you know they know that we can't really run a business based on information that we don't have until they start doing recruitments or whatnot, and that's true. It's just another reason that you you, you look in your account one day and you realize you don't have any money because no one told you that they were going to start significant recruitments from GER. Or DIR, and uh, so they're they're in the process of getting the files um, from CVS, and apparently, you know, these these this data from CVS was um, incorrect by by about five times on the amount, and so they basically were reviewing the data that they have written in the contract that they're provided prior to anything being settled. And of course, you know, this data company, which is what a PVM is, they process electronic data, was either woefully ignorant or purposefully ignorant when they under 
estimated what they owe us by five times. Um, there's a lot of irony there, if you ask me. And, of course, the files they got from OptumRx, they're having to revisit and argue with them about certain things in the contract and, you know, reduce the amount that OptumRx is going to take from us, which I find it ironic because I always get paid by OptumRx way worse than I do anybody else. You know, in their argument, they're talking about the idea that the number that OptumRx came up with is incorrect. It's too much, and they're, you know, pushing back on that. So, you know, that, that's, there's an idea going on right now that, that these fees don't allow us to run our businesses, you know, basically in the, we have to run our businesses in the dark, um, not knowing when this big hit's going to come and, and if that big hit's even, you know, correct. Uh, so that's just some, one of the things that, that I think we're going to hear more about. Um, and, of course, the other thing is credentialing. You know, there's some, some backlogs at, at the credentialing site, and, you know, people are getting checks withheld for reasons that are taking weeks and months to, to, to hash out and, and figure out what it is that they're looking for. You know, you can get a, a credentialing approved or, you know, a, a, a verification that your pharmacy is credentialed and come to find out that it's still not credentialed. And you don't know why, because the reason that they're telling you isn't the same reason that is the actual reason. And so, you know, I've been in this situation recently where it took them two months to figure out what it was that needed to be corrected or what they were looking for um, in that file. And, you know, they were withholding money. Part of that, too, goes back to several years ago when uh, NCPDP was going to charge pharmacies a big batch of money. I can't remember what it was to fill out all of the information in there because that's what the PBMs were going to use. And then they kind of backed off that and we're still you still have to go through and keep all of that information up to date. And then the PBMs come in and want either more or they want the same information that's available. And, you know, it's someplace there needs to be some standardization. And and actually, I, I'm going to say NCPDP's not doing what it should. Um, they haven't been. So they need to get their act together a little bit and uh, do what they do what the guy told me at the NCPA convention about five or six years ago that uh, the PBMs were going to use the information that they supplied and they were going to pay NCPDP in six figures to get that information and that hasn't happened. Yeah, that's a, a good point. And I, I, you know, another thing that, that, you know, has been brought to our attention on the PSAO side is, is that, you know, CVS and OptumRx, and they're all trying to get access to not just the files that we owe, you know, that, that we have from, uh, from themselves, but like for files that other um, payment files uh, from other PBMs. So if, if they you know, try to recoup whatever amount they're trying to recoup from the payments that they're making, they're trying to get the right, or if they haven't already, to to take reimbursements that you're supposed to get from other PBMs. 
And in the past, it's been that they just withhold until they meet the the, the amount that, that you quote unquote owe them. But they're trying to facilitate getting to your money faster by taking your other reimbursements as well until they're made whole, which I think is completely jacked up. So this reminds me of, as we look to the future, that we've been talking about market-based solutions anyway. You know, we have a system right now that just doesn't work and something like 85, if you just look at the, the top four PBMs, something like 85 to 90% of all prescriptions processed through a PBM, all prescriptions processed go through one of these four. And that's a really hard thing to overcome. It's definitely not indicative of a true free market. So we're talking about free market solutions in the future. Uh, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that uh, Indie Health, which is a, a a Medicare D plan that is owned and developed by independent pharmacists, many of whom are members launched this year. They have like ended with like 30,000, over 30,000 new members through open enrollment. And then they'll be able to start taking on more as people age into Medicare. That's just one of the ways that we are starting to address the inequities. And then we're also, you know, launching a program that is all about relocalizing healthcare and and you know teaching the people who make the benefits buying decisions about how they can make smarter choices that really do save money but also reinvest those healthcare dollars back into the local economy because so much of it flows right on out and into you know the hands of a relatively few elite people in three or four states. Yeah, I think that we're all in agreement that, you know, we can, you know, uh, we can try to legislate. It's a slow process. Not really sure that it's going to save the majority of us, but this could. And, and we believe that, that using these direct care models, there's so many awesome people out there who are, who are fighting this fight you know, it, it is a situation where, yes, they found, you know, a market need, but it's not an easy sell. You know, there's a lot of places that need to be convinced that, you know, these these small brokers and small um, direct primary care plans can, you know, even from a, a without even without a PBM and just doing using a, a pricing model and a formulary that's put together by a local independent that we absolutely can handle the volume of those tasks. It's not relegated. It doesn't need to be relegated to a non-transparent PVM. But it benefits the community. It benefits the, the payer, which is the employer or the small um, group. And it benefits the, the community because the independent pharmacy is going to get paid better, but yet they're going to still save the plan money. Um, it's a win-win. Win, 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 actually. And, and I think this is a good place to wrap up our, our podcast episode. It's been a rich conversation. There's been a lot to talk about. Uh, for the people who listen to the podcast, I know I speak for everybody tonight, all of our board members and our members, and I say thank you so much. Thanks for being with us this year. We have learned a lot about what we're doing on, on these episodes, and we've enjoyed every one of them. And we 
We're always open to ideas. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a note in the notes box and please share the, the podcast. If you are interested in being a PUP member, PUP membership is open to anyone who is interested in independent pharmacy and keeping independent pharmacy well and accessible to patients and their communities. You can learn more about us at truthrx.org. But for now, I will end this podcast by um, asking each of our board members to uh, just maybe say a few parting words about what each of you hopes for in the new year. I just hope that everybody um, there a little bit longer. I know that that's kind of a, a, a little bit somber but positive comment. I think that if, if we can wait it out, just a little longer. I know it's going to be a tough year. I know that it's going to be, um, uh, you know, the year that you, you've already used your savings, but you're going to have to borrow more money. It may be worth it. And I, and I think that if you, you put your sweat equity in or if you put your financial equity into this fight with us, I think that, that we are going to be able to make better changes. Perfect. Thank you. Jeremy, what do you hope for in 2021? Hope for more exposure to these problems that we are having. I believe we'll do it. Uh, we have done a great job this year. Uh, being on this board has been huge for me. I absolutely love it. Uh, I think in 2021, I want to see us get out there and expose the PBMs and their bad practices more. I want to see more states pass, more legislation, uh, reining them in. And I want to see more awareness. I want to see more pharmacists getting involved because it's it's going to take more than just you know uh, a, a few retweets or or going out there and you know supporting you know your state organization. You actually have to try to get involved a little bit and and educate your patients, educate lawmakers. You have to, and this is where we're at because we're fighting for our profession right now. That, that's what it is. They they see us as an unnecessary expense, and they want to get rid of us. And we have to treat it like a existential threat because it is. And I want more people to realize that. I I really want to see the pharmacy community wake up and realize that this isn't just about independent pharmacies. This is about our profession as a whole. Excellent. Well said. How about you, Lauren? So my two goals are I want to take down those PCMA state-specific groups, the secret groups that say Illini for Affordable Rx in Illinois, Michiganders for Affordable Rx, because we know they're being sourced by PCMA, but it makes it look like they have more people on their side and they're just spewing misinformation. And so my hope is that we can get them totally knocked out of each of the states because they're trying to counteract all of the good that our members are doing. And then hopefully, just like we did with Minnesota and Michigan, we're able to engage or start more state-specific PUT chapters. Each state has different regulations right now, and they're trying to open the floor to having more state legislation. And I think the best way to do that is by having a core group get loud and get bigger and stronger with one united voice in your state. Excellent. Love it. Van, how about you? Everybody, all, all pharmacists get to know their legislators. 
whether it's their state representative and senator, uh, whether it's the two senators and their representative that they have in Washington, D.C., get to know those people, get in their face and talk with them. Give them good information. Don't go in and just start uh, shooting from the hip. Make sure that you've got got your spiel all in order and talk to them and get to know them. The more that you get to know them, ask them into your pharmacy. And if you can get pictures of them, send it in to Monique and uh, any of the members that's out there, try to recruit new members. I realize that uh, money's tight, but we're doing more than anybody else is. Perfect, thank you. All right, that is this episode of the podcast. Thank you for joining us and we will see you in the new year. Happy holidays! Happy holidays! Happy holidays. <laughs>